1: Genevieve Kosky is behind the boards this week, cowering in fear, but she'll be with us again on a less spooky episode. Here on the next picture show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum, and that all culture is more interesting in context, so every week we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, Parental Grief and Psychic Distress are the twin engines that power two terrifying films about the lingering impact of a death in the family. Tasha, it's the middle of summer and you're wearing a heavy red coat. What's that all about?
0: I mean, I'm a ghastly premonition of your doom. Also, I thought it might get drafty in the studio.
1: Okay. I'm scared but intrigued. What's this week's pairing?
0: Since Hereditary premiered in the midnight section at the Sundance Film Festival, it's been the most talked about horror film of 2018. Written and directed by first-timer Ari Aster, the film starts with the death of a mysterious, diabolical old woman and considers how her passing affects her daughter, played by Toni Collette. She and her family are each left to deal in their own way with a deadly supernatural inheritance. Aster turned to a number of classic sources for Hereditary, including Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist, but the standout influence is Nicholas Roeg's form-busting 1973 thriller Don't Look Now. Based on a story by Daphne du Maurier, who also wrote the stories that formed the basis for Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds and Rebecca, Don't Look Now also starts with a death in the family. And it similarly follows parents whose lingering grief manifests into a terrifying new threat to their marriage and their lives.
1: Both movies are also, it should be said, freaky as hell. And the reason they're freaky as hell isn't entirely owed to Aster and Rogue's considerable capacities to shock. The intensity of emotion in Hereditary and Don't Look Now are integral to the horror. As the parents in both films seek answers for this hole in their lives, their desperation raises the stakes and feeds into the atmosphere. On today's show, we'll look into Don't Look Now and its innovative approach to sex and death in the shadows of Venice. Then next week, we'll bring in Hereditary and unpack all 127 minutes of the densest and most ambitious horror film in recent memory. Tasha, please take off that red coat and stay a while, unless you're hiding a knife under there.
2: They say seeing is believing, but only a split second of time separates the past from the future. The present is crushed between them, a thin thread of life in a skein of death.
0: At. I don't know what's happening. You are warned, things are not what they seem. Don't look now.
1: I can remember exactly where I was when I first saw Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Now. I was an undergrad at the University of Georgia in the early nineties, taking the second part of a two part course on the history of cinema. The class was early in the morning, and since I was a night owl, I always arrived a little tired and had a tendency to drift off whenever the professor turned out the lights and screened something for us. We were working on a section about montage editing techniques, so naturally he screened Don't Look Now, so we could all appreciate the associative power of its images. I recall watching the bulk of the film in a state of half-sleep, which isn't that bad a way to experience it, honestly. But then suddenly, when it got to the end, and Donald Sutherland is confronted by the dwarf in the red coat, the shock was so great it felt like an ice pick stabbing my brain. It was like emerging from a nightmare, only to discover that it was real. I've seen Don't Look Now a few times since then, fully awake, and yet the experience is remarkably similar. It's a film that holds viewers in a trance, where you lose yourself in images that associate with each other without binding together in the order you expect from a conventional narrative. In the Criterion edition of Don't Look Now, director Danny Boyle talks about how, in the films of Nicholas Rowe, quote, time is always present, which is an elegant way to describe how tragedy and grief attach themselves to the parents in the film. After we see them lose their daughter to a drowning accident in the brilliant opening sequence, John and Laura, played by Sutherland and Julie Christie, spend the rest of the film in Venice, where they're trying to get away from the British home where the accident happened. And what they discover, of course, is that they can't get away from it. Time has collapsed in a way because such a tragedy is not only inescapable, but winds up manifesting itself in new horrors. The one possibility of relief that presents itself are the visions of a blind seer that Laura meets in a restaurant. Two old women, one of them psychic, tell Laura that her daughter is happy and present, and for a moment she feels this immense burden being lifted. Later that evening, she and John express the relief in one of cinema's most artful sex sequences, which, in typical time-jumbling rogue fashion, cuts between graphic lovemaking and shots of them getting dressed afterwards. Steven Soderbergh, a big admirer of Rogue's editing style, would famously modify that sequence to his own end and out of sight. And yet, Laura and John's relief is short-lived. As John attempts to throw himself into his work restoring an old church, the past, present, and future start to merge in mysterious and threatening ways. We don't know how much time has passed between his daughter's death and his time in Venice, but it might as well be yesterday. Certain visual motifs, like water, broken glass, and the red raincoat his daughter is wearing keep recurring, and the presence of another diminutive figure in a red coat heightens the confusion. At the beginning of the film, John feels something is wrong, and his extrasensory perception leads him to rush outside to find his daughter in the lake. Now in Venice, he's feeling something again, but he can't be sure if it's the past catching up to him, or portents of a future he can't quite see. And that's the special magic of Don't Look Now. Rogue's style is unsettling because we don't have any firm footing in time, yet there's a cohesiveness to the images that keep resurfacing and the lingering emotions that John and Laura are feeling. Rogue pulls off one of the all-time great shocks at the end, but it only works because it suspends us in a hypnotic state for so long. We'll talk about the hows and the whys of it after the break.
2: Goodness, you do remind me of my daughter. Only my hands, darker. Oh. <laughs> well, um, here, take your
0: handkerchief. You're sad. You're so sad, and there's no need to be. My sister's psychic. She wants you to know. I've seen her. And she wants you to know that she's happy. I've seen your little girl sitting between you and your husband,
2: and, and she was laughing. Yes. Oh, yes, she's with you. She's with you, oh, my dear. And she's laughing. I'm
0: sorry if we're scared. She's wearing a, a shiny little mask. Oh, Christ Oh, but she's laughing. She's laughing. She's happy as can be.
1: Uh, so I've told you about my history with "Don't Look Now." What is your history, and how does it hold for, up for you in the year 2018?
2: I love it. Rogue is a, is a favorite, and this is a period when he could do no wrong. Essentially, I think it's the only t- second time I've seen it, and I think the first time I saw it was on VHS. So I, I was happy to watch this on uh, again on a, on a nice blu-ray many years later and i would say if anything it's uh, you know not to get too autobiographical here but it's more chilly now as a parent to to watch this movie than as a callow youth uh when when all this sort of loss was more theoretical
0: mm-hmm. oh my gosh and she's i mean she looks a lot like your daughter i know
2: <laughs> she does she looks a lot like my daughter Whoa. uh yep i don't think she owns a red raincoat i'm never gonna get her a red raincoat
0: <laughs> I mean, every time you saw her from behind, you'd get wigged out, and every (laughs) time you saw her from the front, you'd get sad. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Stabbed or sad? Sad.
0: (laughs) Probably both. (laughs) A little from Columbia. A. So I was watching this movie last night with my husband and he said oh this is one of the first movies I ever showed you. There was a period like we met our first year in college and there was a period where he was kind of running me through like some of the films that were most meaningful to him like Wings of Desire and Double Life of Veronique and Julia and this one and you know there isn't a dud in the bunch. So I kind of came to it through the advocacy of somebody who loved it, and I suspect that that kind of carried me through during an era where, you know, I I grew up watching like films in the nineteen eighties, and like if you if you grew up on a steady diet of like. Ghostbusters, this movie is challenging. Mm-hmm. It's recondite, and it's complicated, and it's sleepy at times, and it's disassociative, and then there are then just these incredibly emotional, jarring moments where you can't quite believe what you're seeing on screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, the whole business in the church with the scaffolding uh, is up there, and like the nightmarish sequence that he goes through when he thinks he sees his wife on a boat passing in the Grand Canal, I mean, none of these things are as shocking as that ending, but they all kind of come Home through with that that clarity of nightmare, so like I don't think it's a perfect film. I I still to this day like wish it was a little tighter, that I had a little more sense of Sutherland. Like what what matters to Sutherland? I see all these things in him about what he does and doesn't want to deal with, what he does and doesn't care about, but I still end up finding him kind of a mystery as a character. But that said, I mean this is it's one of the all time great shock endings. And yeah. you just you really can't beat it. But, for yeah, that. I mean does
1: it does it freak you out to see it? I mean, does it still it's not just me then who's like I mean I guess it is a fairly famous shock ending, but every single time I see this film. It just knocks me out. It, like I know what's coming and it still gets me.
0: I mean, it doesn't in the same sort of way because not in the the way of I know what's coming so it's not scary anymore, so much as <laughs> I just I find myself super braced up for oh this is so eerie. Uh, yeah. And so it can't quite be as eerie as the imagination's built it into. But her face, her just her completely yeah. blank face like if she snarled at him or screamed at him or something it would be so much less uncanny and unnerving but like her calm in that moment is endlessly unsettling
2: I think also for a film that's at least partially about fate being a circle from which you can't escape I find myself at the beginning and end of this movie, just thinking, oh, don't do that. Just don't, (laughs) don't, you you can, you can stop this. You can, you you know, your girl's going to drown. You're going to get stabbed by this dwarf. Just stop. And then like the rhythms of the film are such that you just kind of, drawn to it like a you know gravitational pull that you can't escape you know it's it's part of what makes the film so effective
0: yeah it's really common in films to have somebody with some form of psychic power it is not so common to have somebody with a psychic power that only alerts me when it's too late to do anything about it mm-hmm. and that moment where he suddenly snaps to in the beginning But you know from watching, from having watched the film before, even from just the way it plays out, you know by the time he snaps to, it's already too late and it's it's just so much of a tragedy. That scene does play very different for me now, just because... Like, I mean, I grew up as a free range kid. Like we lived like four blocks from a library and like at seven years old, I was walking to the library by myself, hanging out there, getting books and coming back and nobody thought anything of it. Mm-hmm. Watching this today, I've got a little feeling of why are you letting your child play by the lake alone? What's wrong with you?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, that, and that feeds into the movie too. That comes up in conversation. I think Donald Sutherland's character who has allowed the children to play back there and she lays a pretty strong guilt trip on him. For that, but um, but as far as the effectiveness of the film, I think it. I think so much of it relies. Well, there's two things. I mean, one is this mix of the supernatural, which makes many things possible, and a very strong emotional realism. I suppose a very relatable emotional situation. So there's that, and then the other thing is just rogues really. Adventurous narrative strategy of combining these colors and these images and these motifs that keep coming back—all of that kind of feeds into the intensity of the movie. And I think, I think that's kind of what gives that the payoff of the film so much of its shock value is just like, oh, is this this rush of images that have been accumulating this whole film? They lead to this sort of natural and horrific end, and it's a payoff to a style that I, I think it was a huge gamble. I mean, it's something that, he, that Nicholas Rogue. Himself had been working on for a while from mm-hmm. the from his first film as a director, which is Performance, which he made with Mick Jagger who was the other credited director. No, only. Donald
2: Campbell is the other. Donald Campbell,
1: okay, director, but but Jaggers um, stars. but but that that one is pretty radically edited. But I think this has got a little bit more of a. Uh, it's a little more purposeful I would say the editing in this yeah. than performance
2: well and like point blank you know, John Dorman's point blank uh, they, it owes a lot to Petulia which is really uh, Richard Lester's one of my favorite movies of all time uh, Richard Lester's film starring Julie Christie and George C. Scott and the editing style is very much there and, and Rogue was a cinematographer on that film so okay. he was able to kind of witness firsthand how, how this is being put together and, and ran with it uh, for the rest of his career really especially in these early days definitely and, and to me it's I know you studied it I'm sure you can you, know, you sure you can do a shot by shot analysis of it but it's almost just feels just kind of instinctual to me there's there's a kind of magic to what he does with that in here the match cuts and the sort of the transitions from one to the other in this is in perfect rhythm it, i mean he does it as, as these wonderful grace notes throughout the film but the beginning and the end and and the famous love scene just the mind boggles as, as to how well those are put together
1: yeah i was surprised to read that the Love scene the way that ended up being cut together was one of those things bored on out of, out of necessity that the the sex scene was so graphic and so challenging to the ratings board that he had to go back and figure out ways to make it as intense as he wanted it to be uh while also abiding by you know the the spirit of the censors and what they wanted him you know what, what they needed from the scene as well and things like the scissors didn't want like thrusting, for example, and so on the thrust, he would cut to them getting dressed, and he just ended up with this totally bewitching sequence that is completely within the style of the film anyway, editing-wise, which is why oh, I was surprised just to read about this anecdote at all, because I just figured, hey, that's his whole way of making this movie. Of course he did it that way. That's the way he made this film, but in fact, that specific sequence was born out of uh, troubles with censors.
0: I mean, that actually makes me wonder if he went back and made other scenes- match with sort of the feel of that you know the the beginning where you're getting those cuts it's very abrupt like the match cuts are to me actually very jarring because they're so some of the inserts are so brief uh and they happen so quickly and it would make sense to me if he was actually doing that stylistically to match with what he had to do with the love scene
1: well maybe but i mean the other elements of the film are pretty obviously carefully planned in the shooting, though, I mean, like, the beginning of the film, I mean, that is the configuration of the of the blood and the water and all of this very specific curvature in the film. I mean, that is something you can't edit to create. That is something you have to have thought through before you even, you know, start making the movie. And So that part of it was thought through, and maybe I guess he just improvised something here. Though I wonder about, like, was there, like, a scene of them getting... Just dressed afterwards, where they, maybe it was a dialogue scene, and that he cut up or something like that. Maybe that's maybe that's the way it worked. But the way it plays out in the film, the getting dressed part is like crazy sexy, right? In a way that makes it seem totally planned. No, uh, yeah,
2: it, I mean, just it's a wonderful depiction of afterglow. I mean, just sort of yeah. like looking, being very comfortable with each other, admiring each other. You know, reflecting on what just happened. I mean, this is something you don't really see in films very often. It's hot, married sex. It's sex between people who know each other. It's not. There's no surprises, but it's all satisfaction between two people who have spent their lives together and are comfortable around each other. And it's just usually, you know, in movies you see first couplings or the the heat of passion of a, of, a, of a young love. And this is something different. And, and I think it's part of what makes sets it apart.
1: I think in context, though, you would have to say that it's likely that they've never been able to have sex as freely or maybe even at all, we don't know how much time has passed of course between when the daughter dies and when they're in Venice but like the sex scene happens after Julie Christie meets with the two women and and they tell her about the daughter and she feels great about it you know they tell her her daughter is happy and present and around them and it's everything is okay and it's just it's such a huge exhilarating moment for her especially him I think he's just relieved that well
2: yeah that's my pushback there which is that it means a lot to her yeah I think it only matters to him because it means a lot to her yeah but i think he is not just dubious but a little worried about the effect it has on her so i, I don't know that none of that moment though <laughs> none of that well there's distractions uh yeah. but um <laughs> but i don't know i, I just I've, i i do get the sense this is the first time they've been able to be this intimate in a long time since the daughter's death but um, yeah, I don't know that he's feeling the same thing that she is.
0: I don't, I don't see that. I mean, I see them both as being very into the minute. For what it's worth, uh, I don't find the getting dressed thing uh, nearly as sexy as the lead up where they're just kind of casually naked around each other. I mm. I actually found that more charming in a way because that's another thing you don't see much in movies is just the way people who've been married for a long time can be very casually comfortable with each other's bodies. You know, Nudity on screen is often... Often such a big deal. It's it's contractual. It's complicated. There's a lot of negotiation. You have to worry about the the censor board, and then on top of all of that, you know, you're you're trying to get actors to be comfortable with each other, and so it's just so rare to see people being naked in a way that doesn't feel like performative or calculated. Uh, it doesn't feel like it's for the audience um, when they're hanging out in the bathroom together and you know, they're just going through, you know, showering and talking to each other and Sutherland's examining his own love handles. It really feels like an intimate moment that is for them rather than for us, which is mm. it's really hard to accomplish.
1: Yeah. And I think it, it sets a tone of a much more relaxed feeling that we get for any scene surrounding that that one extended sequence in the, in the hotel room um, because it's so tense leading up to that that scene and then so tense afterwards they're just in this perfect little bubble and and uh it's just one of those sex scenes that's this that's not only memorable but well motivated thoughtful and responsive to how the characters are actually feeling at this specific moment but so i mean let's kind of get into this a little bit in terms of like their relationship and 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 who they are because laura seems a little bit easier to read than john why do you think that is
0: I think they're in fairly uh, standard gender roles. I mean, I think she's a lot more expressive, especially about her emotional response to what happened to her daughter. And I think that he is suppressed a lot of it there's that i mean one of the most striking moments in the film is just when he's pulling his daughter out of the lake and he's making those horrible wounded animal noises i mean you you just kind of see him feeling almost more naked than he does when he's getting out of the shower Mm -hmm. it's an agonizing moment and i think the rest of the film you see him in recovery from that having tamped it down and sublimated it so he's focusing on his work but he also just has this very grim like he says several times, our daughter is dead. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, he, and he says it like it's something he has had to say to himself very grimly. Yeah. I just I get more of a sense of who she is because she says it. You know, she puts it out here. This is what I think. This is what I feel. This is what I want. Whereas, you know, he keeps basically saying, "We're not talking about this. You're not allowed to experience this. We are going to react emotionally in this acceptable way."
1: Yeah, and and I think there's a little bit of an extra burden on him because it's his fault that the kids are playing outside. That that is explicitly stated. I think that that gives an extra kind of weight on his shoulder. Is on his it? Shoulders. I
0: mean, he may feel the guilt and she may use it as leverage in a moment where she really needs leverage, but they're both parents together. I mean, neither yeah. one of them stopped their kids. I, I can perfectly accept that that is what they both think, but it's certainly not something that I think if that matters.
1: It's a fascinating th- phenomenon to me. It's something I really like to see explored in dr- dramas, not just Don't Look Now, but other films as well about how marriages end up working after the death of a child you know how about how difficult it is for for them to continue on because this is the product of their relationship that is now gone and so what what does the relationship actually mean and it's it's kind of exciting to see it explored here in the context of a horror film as it is exciting i think will Talk about next week with Hereditary about how uh, it, it's explored in that context, too. But but clearly, the, the, the marriage is not the same after something like this happens. And how, how do you recover and how do you, how do you work as a couple after that?
2: And how do you, you know, it doesn't work out here, but they certainly seem to be in the process of learning how to reconfigure their marriage after the blow it's taken. I think the film is fatalistic about the possibility of that, but they're trying. There's an effort there as well.
1: One other big aspect of the film, of course, is the setting too, I mean, it's it's such it's such a memorable use of Venice and its locations. I mean, what what do you what what sort of picture of the city is Rogue painting here? I mean, I, I almost think this almost to me feels like Taxi Driver did when we did that show, and yeah. that we're seeing a city. Filtered through kind of the narrow perception of the protagonists of the movie right well
2: it's literally decadent it's a city that's falling apart and that's part of why he's there in the first place but it's the the setting reflects the mood of the characters I mean this is a place that that is it's a place that's crumbling and, and it was once solid once the seat of an empire and it's fallen in stature in the world over the years it was absorbed into other empires but beyond that it's just it's what's what's been built can't be sustained without a lot of care and new ingredients and and you know it's the it's the metaphor is all all right there for you to parse but beyond that i mean the, the spookiness of the place is really captured well i I've, I've been in venice one day so i mean like i'm not like an expert on the place but it's an, an otherworldly kind of place simply because of the absence of cars i mean it's just sounds that you expect to hear in a city that you don't hear in venice and it's unusual that way and it's also they capture how it is impossible not to get lost it is is twisty streets and like tiny alleys and little bridges going seemingly nowhere and you can turn a corner and be back where you started and it's it's, uh, it's fascinating that way and, and 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 spooky as well
0: i mean it seems deserted in a lot of sequences and if not deserted then haunted by the the figure that seems to be their daughter the little shape in the red cloak there are so many sequences where one or the other or both of them are wandering around these you know sort of strange hallways of like narrow bridges and canals and archways and there's just nobody in sight and really stark intense lighting kind of forming the the shapes of some of those arches and striking everything beyond them in shadow and you just you get the sense it almost at times feels like a set like not a a built set to shoot a movie in but like a stage set mm-hmm. where it's all suggestive of a, a larger space uh but it's you know necessarily very stylized and the fact that you're getting that out of real architecture uh, is striking i mean just that the whole city feels stylized around the idea of, of emptiness and echoingness and hauntedness Yeah, I mean
1: in, for a city very underpopulated deliberately underpopulated you get one scene where they get lost and then they emerge back into a crowd but it feels almost like some sort of a ghost what did you say like a film set you know, and I think about other films with Venice in them. I mean, think of a film like David Lean's *Summertime*. Have you seen that with uh, Catherine Hepburn? I need to see that. I, it's it's a good one, but I mean, it's it's fun. It's bright. It's summery. I mean, like uh, uh, Catherine Hepburn falls into the canal. I mean, it's a, it's a much different feel than *Don't Look Now* or,
2: or *Telling Mr. Ripley* too. It's definitely a sunnier side of, of Venice. But Let's I mean, do, how much how much of that is in Venice? Though no, not that much. The end. On the other hand,
1: this is very close
2: to *Death in Venice* in many ways. The Visconti film, which oh, is right. another haunted decadent venice movie
1: i mean and i think it's pretty critical the cut from julie christie's screaming to venice the first shot is of a drill going into like crumbling a crumbling facade yeah it's just like a it's already a disaster and of course anytime he's working on this church and putting up statues or going up on that extremely rickety scaffolding, there's the sense of everything's in a collapse. There's nothing permanent or steady about the city at all.
0: Leaving aside the architecture, one of the big things I get out of the setting here is just a sense of displacement. Because Sutherland, he speaks a fair bit of the language and he comes across as very collected and couth. Like he feels that, you know, he's a man of the world and he knows his way around. But we keep seeing places that he he just doesn't fit in with the culture at all. You know, there's the whole conflict between the bishop and the prelate in charge of the the church, which seems to kind of go over his head. There's the business with the hotelier who keeps trying to get him out. Like, wait, the season is over. The summer is over. Why won't you go away? And he just, he completely keeps missing the cues and and missing what he's told. Even the sequence with the scaffolding, it kind of feels like everybody in the room knows that what he's doing is kind of like dangerous and stupid. And they're all kind of (laughs) watching him. Like, don't don't you see that there is doom here, you crazy foreigner? <laughs> it just, the difference between sort of how he seems to see himself and how the city responds to him, I think is endlessly fascinating. And I, I do think it's kind of reflected in the ending where he thinks he's somewhere where he belongs and where he's comfortable and where he's home and Venice has rejected him. It's just not true.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's just no possibility for escape i mean that's the the whole idea of going to venice was to escape and, and to, to find something new and constructive to do and being this you know city that can be romantic but is anything but so how does this fit into nicholas rogue's career i mean we should talk about him a little bit he started as a cinematographer I mean, we talk about david lean he was a second unit photographer on lawrence of arabia he shot mask of the red death for roger corman mm-hmm. he shot shall- good looking movie he shot Fahrenheit 451 for France Watcher Faux. Uh, he shot Petulia, as you mentioned. But his directorial, it, it, from the beginning, performance of 1970, you know, his voice is a, Filmmaker is quite distinctive. Well, how would you describe it?
2: Well, that's another movie about you know identities that kind of merge and blur in some interesting ways, which is somewhat true of this as well. But that's a very that's sort of a tough film to describe. <laughs> I mean, have you have you seen it, Scott? Yeah, I have. Yeah. I, have.
1: I mean, it's so experimental. The, mm-hmm. the cutting, it's so aggressive. It's it's far beyond mm-hmm. even what he does in Don't Look Now.
2: Yeah, for sure. And and, and Walkabout is really a, a favorite film of mine, and another film. Um, just a little bit of plot. It's set in Australia, the Australian Outback, where a couple of white kids get separated. They're separated from from society, uh, yeah. And uh, they go on a walkabout. Yeah, they go on a walkabout with with a young Aboriginal man, and uh, it's it's a lot of just them wandering around nature. But there's more to it than that. And it has really one of the most devastatingly heartbreaking edits I've ever seen in a movie, which I will definitely not spoil. Yeah. And uh, Man of Earth, which is which I feel that maybe he was emboldened by Don't Look Now to even take things a little further. That's another film about. Loss and time and and communication and and people losing their identity. It's 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 uh, there's a lot of casual nudity and casual nudity. Of, and casual nudity. <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot the, of the uh,
1: most David Bowie the most perfect David Bowie yeah. role ever conceived. Yeah, you
2: can't cast anyone I mean, as an alien, but guns. but David Bowie in, yeah, that, in yeah. that role. But bad timing. I, I remember liking and it's uh, kind of makes use of Vienna the way this makes use of Venice. But but I, I'm the yeah, details it, of it are, an are intensified
1: escaping. sensuality too yeah. in that film too. Um,
2: well, any film with Art Garfunkel is going to have very intense <laughs> oh, yeah. sensuality.
1: And Keitel, it's, it's, yeah, uh, you cute. know, that's Keitel solidly in his, uh, in his uh, erotic prime. <laughs> um, I mean,
0: so- <laughs> you know, the piano.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, that's true. I mean, he, he's, been, he's been there for us for, for decades. So.
0: <laughs> I just, I see so much kind of, like, basically in his work, a combination of, like, gauzy dreaminess and... And those really abrupt, like, sharp cuts. Like, he's a a really big fan of sudden harsh zooms forcing you to look at something. Mm -hmm. And of those really sharp, abrupt cuts, again, kind of forcing you to look at something. And he has a tendency to edit these, like, long, almost sleepy scenes uh, and then, you know, jump on you with something. And, I mean, I see that in A Man Who Fell to Earth. I see it in Walkabout. I saw the witches so separately from his other films yeah uh, and it's just such a different species of animal in so many ways yeah I kind of want to go back and revisit that one and and look like specifically for his kind of editing and shooting tricks but they're not there I mean, so
1: the shooting tricks are there. I mean, it's beautifully ph- photographed. I, I really love The Witches from 1990, but... Uh, and the, but and the he,
0: color. Like, he's, as of... a cinematographer, he he does tend to like his really intense color, and that's mm-hmm. a big thing in The Witches.
1: Yeah, and, and it means something. And it means something in Don't Look Now, too. I mean, the color red obviously figures pretty prominently in the movie, and it allows us to make intuitive connections rather than connections that are made through more conventional storytelling means, which is, you know, a very risky thing to do but but is kind of what sets them apart
0: you say that I I keep having to remind myself that he did not direct Picnic at Hanging Rock because I conflate that movie with his career so much because it's about the same like strange supernatural unexplained occurrences it's about the same visually gauzy sexuality it's about the same sort of sense of dreaming in the real world Uh, it's just to me it feels so much like a Nicholas Rogue movie in so many ways. And there's a
2: walkabout like you know Australia was of interest to him as as well. Certainly. uh, Yeah I can see making that. You know, you know, it's, it's a little off topic, but speaking of connections, and we'll obviously talk a lot about this with uh, hereditary. But um, I mean, wow, you can see so many films borrowed from this, um, like the scene where the two women are alone and there's kind of cackling and there's we don't know why why they're cackling. It's so much the scene from Mulholland Drive with the older couple mm. when we see them cackling on their own. Oh too. I thought I thought you were gonna
1: see Suspiria. Well, Suspiria,
2: but... yeah no I mean well Jallo in general and Argento in particular owe a lot to the to to this film as well. <laughs> we
0: just saw the first purge like two nights ago and I'm I'm thinking you, you know the two ladies with their uh, shopping carts and their yeah. uh, stuffed animals
2: with the Rick James uh, s- soundtrack Track.
0: yeah I mean their relationship feels very very similar to that yeah it kind of does and they definitely have that scene where they're cackling together and, and they've kind of like shut out the world yeah. because they're alone in their their strange little space it's an easy film to borrow from I guess hmm.
1: yeah it's, it's it's good stuff I think the director of Hereditary may have uh, taken a look at this film as well but we'll talk about that in the next episode in the meantime we'll be right back to get some feedback on recent episodes Now it's time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. Our pairing of Goldfinger and Incredibles 2 got some thoughtful feedback from our superheroic podcast subscribers. Keith, do you want to get us started?
2: Sure. Lucas from New York has some thoughts on the memorable music in James Bond and the Incredibles movies. He writes I was intrigued by this week's pairing of Incredibles 2 and Goldfinger. And I thought you brought up some very interesting stylistic points, but at no point did you really talk about the music. You spoke briefly about the Bond theme and John Barry's fantastic score, but you didn't mention Michael Giacchino's miraculous, vibrant, ecstatic work on The Incredibles, which along with his jaw-dropping and sumptuous work on Ratatouille are two of the best scores, not just of their decade, but of all time. Giacchino has proven to be one of the great composers working today. But one aspect of his career that is undervalued is that, like J.J. Abrams, he is unparalleled in his ability to make his music feel like other people's work. His Rogue One score, famously written and recorded in four weeks, sounds like a spot-on continuation of John Williams' iconic work. His score on Mission Impossible 3 and 4 is a bombastic extension of Lalo Schifrin's work. His outstanding track, Roar, that plays only during the credits of Cloverfield, is the best part of the movie and feels like a cousin of Godzilla. And recently, he's wasted his time trying to breathe life into Joe's Jurassic Park sequels. It is worth pointing out that while The Incredibles was Michael Giacchino's first feature film score, he was not the first choice. The original composer was David Arnold, a composer notable for his work on such films as Tomorrow Never Dies, The World Is Not Enough, Die Another Day, and Casino Royale. In fact, the teaser trailer for The Incredibles, the one with Mr. Incredible sitting up for an adventure, only to be thwarted by his tiny belt and protruding gut, features a track from Honor Majesty's Secret Service as a tone setter. It is also almost note for note the theme to The Incredibles. More than the style, the flash, the gadgets, or in this case, powers, I think the Incredibles' strongest link to the world of Bond is in its soundtrack, which plays almost like a jazzy cover to Bond classics. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm going to go rewatch The Incredibles. This is a good letter, uh, and I agree. Giacchino, he's great. Yeah, I, it-
0: I love letters that I where I learn something. Uh, mm-hmm. I this is all on me as a moderator i i made a point of bringing up the soundtrack and score with bond and i really meant to bookend it in connections um and we had a bunch of other things to talk about and it slipped my mind but i incredibles 2 in some ways left me cold and the two things that that just kind of kept me energized throughout were the action sequences and the soundtrack like that soundtrack is so thrilling and exciting and it really moves the emotional along in ways that maybe the first film didn't need as much uh but it becomes a a really necessary crutch i think in two i mean it's it very much evokes the mission impossible theme it very much has that kind of jazzy 60s feel and to some degree I, i i feel like the entire period aspect of these films comes more from the need for like that style of soundtrack than it comes from anything in the narrative that says it's got to be set in that that 50s 60s era.
2: Yeah, I love that it's his first score, his first feature film score anyway. Just like, oh, first try, what are you going to do? Oh, yeah, it's great. <laughs> you know, I'm going to knock yeah. it out he, of the park. He, he done, isn't that what you do? Yeah, he'd done sh- apparently shorts and a lot of video games before that, including Medal of Honor when back when it was like the World War II series of games. So it has like that kind of John Williams, Saving Private Ryan feel to the, if I remember his music for that correctly. But uh, yeah, he's, he's remarkable. It's definitely a name that I look forward to seeing.
0: Yeah. And uh, I mean, I'm going to take exception with the idea that that Roar is the best part of Cloverfield because I love Cloverfield. But Roar may be the first time I've ever laughed out loud at a completely like nonverbal musical thing. Like it, it isn't recognition of uh, like a reference or a song I know. It was just when it started playing over the credits, when it started building and I could see musically where it was going, I laughed out loud in the theater out of literally sheer delight because it was just so much an evocation of Godzilla, Mm -hmm. and it was so much an acknowledgement. It felt like the resolution that the movie itself didn't have. It felt like the emotional catharsis that the movie didn't give us. It is, I I think, a, a tr- both a tremendous piece of music and just a really appropriate piece of music for the end of that film.
2: What are some of your favorite scores? Uh, for for me, I think it's *Planet of the Apes*. Scores are both were both really great. And and uh, but *Inside Out* to me is like, one. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Just because I have powerful associations with that that film, but that just the music for that will make me uh, make me a little misty. I gotta yeah, say. I was
1: I was gonna make the same point. I don't even know if that's entirely to his credit or the, to the credit of the film. It's but there is that associative thing. We, as soon as I hear that score, it's like, oh, boy. Here come the waterworks. Here we go. <laughs> yeah. So this week, we also got some interesting Incredibles 2 criticism on our Facebook page from listener Ben. Tasha?
0: Uh, Ben writes, For me, the crux of the original Incredibles was the mundane domestic issues of adolescence and middle age, which are heightened to exciting extremes by the superhero motif. Unfortunately, Incredibles 2 just seems to double down on the superheroism while leaving the personal stories to stagnate. We again look at the conflict between a domestic and a professional parent, albeit with the genders reversed this time, while the children essentially grapple with the exact same challenges they faced in the first film. One bristles under the restrictions imposed on him as a kid, the other restricts herself out of shyness. Sure, I enjoyed watching Elastigirl land a runaway helicopter, but splashy action sequences are par for the course with the superhero genre. What set The Incredibles apart was how it used the genre as a vehicle for telling a story about family. Hopefully, once Incredibles 3 rolls around, they'll remember what made this series appealing in the first place. Perhaps they can let the characters age a little and explore the other challenges families face later in life. How do Dash and Violet react when they leave home and finally get the freedom they want? How do Bob and Helen react as they approach retirement and finally have to admit their best years are behind them? And what will Jack-Jack look like when it comes time for him to actually live up to his potential? These are the sorts of questions I'd love to see the Parr family answer in the future rather than seeing them simply face new supervillains while remaining the same themselves.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think there's a um, limitation, a self-imposed limitation of starting the the new film right where the last one left off. So you can't catch them at a different time in their lives. Right. You know, they, they've grown a little bit in the, over the course of the Incredibles, but they can't, it would be a much different thing if we started you know five years of the future, ten years in the future, and they 're much different characters with much different lives and, and conflicts and maybe that will be something uh, we 'll see in Incredibles three fourteen years from now, <laughs> when it gets made so i think I think what we ended up seeing with Incredibles Two is a little bit safe franchise maintenance, which is not the most exciting thing you want from a movie, especially a sequel to a, a film that was so. Uh, thrilling you know you, you don't want to just to see the, the further adventures of doesn't quite cut it I guess is and I think that's kind of what we are uh, the consensus we sort of came to on the show
0: oh yeah I mean I agree 100% with this letter for me the the problem is yes you're catching them at the exact same time in their lives but you're also catching them as they've all in the moment that they've all just kind of come off of coming to a place of of satisfaction if the Story was about how just having one confident moment with a boy doesn't necessarily mean you know how to handle more of a relationship. That finally getting to race uh, or finally getting to take superheroic action is not going to satisfy you for life. Like, if the movie had taken any time whatsoever to examine the fact that, like, the arcs that they all went through in the first film weren't necessarily enough to change a life that would have been really interesting and daring and like Pixarian thing to do like to examine. There's always the question of what happens after the happily ever after Incredibles 2 had a really good happily ever after for everybody except the villain. And then we dial back on all of those things. And and as he says here, it just it feels like they're fighting the exact same battles and not in an interesting or fulfilling way.
2: I'll just add kind of what, you know, the concise opinion I had last week was yeah, but I like it. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's yeah, what, yeah. That, is, I like that it. is true, too. I, mean, I think of the Pixar playing it safe sequels, it's, I mean, it's the best sequel outside of the to- Toy Story movies in that respect. I, I,
2: I would love to see something that what Ben suggests, which is essentially would be. A, an Incredibles oh. equivalent to a Toy Story two or three, where we're actually pushing these characters forward in time and dealing with different different periods of their, of their life. Yeah, and their I lives. think it's
0: going to be much harder to do that with an Incredibles three, having done this with an Incredibles two. Yeah, you know, even if it had pushed forward a year or two, um, there there might have been an opportunity to do something radical like Toy Story three did. But here, it's going to feel a little weird if we get these two movies that are like within minutes of each other, and then suddenly we try to move forward to. I jack jack's 18 like here's what he's doing at superhero college
2: how about a sequel where past and present kind of merge and flow seamlessly (laughs) Uh edited in in really evocative ways directed by nicholas Uh Rowe, with a with uh, a
0: detailed lengthy sex scene between uh (laughs) elaine
2: would like
1: that (laughs) uh
0: yeah way too many people on the internet would no as a matter of fact i i know what i really want incredibles 3 to be and i'm hoping by the time this podcast hits i have written that piece and, and put it on the internet
1: Well, we'll look forward to that. That wraps up our feedback for this episode. We always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may feature your response on a future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion. that's it for this episode of the next picture show and part two will bring in hereditary and consider how its own family tragedy reverberates through the survivors lives in bone-chilling ways starting with this pair of episodes the next picture show will roll out on a weekly basis rather than twice every two weeks so every tuesday you'll get a new episode of the show so look for our hereditary episode next tuesday or better yet subscribe to the next picture show on apple podcasts spotify or your podcatcher of choice find us at nextpictureshow.net follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow and follow us on twitter at next picture pod so you'll always know when a new episode drops until then we'll be hanging out in some indeterminate temporal space and feeling really uncomfortable